Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Oksanya. All right. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. I'm Abraham Oksoya and I'm so delighted, so delighted to have you all here on the podcast today. Now, just before we, we dive right into the podcast today, we've got a, a fantastic session, an episode planned for you. Um, can I just say, if you're listening to the podcast, do me a huge, huge favor. Um, leave us a review on um, on is it called iTunes now or Apple podcast? I don't even know anymore or, or wherever, you know, wherever you, whatever platform you, you listen, um, you know, to the podcast on, leave, leave us a review on, on Apple podcast. Let us know how we're doing good or bad, by the way. Yeah. Give, give us a review. I am really, really excited about my guest today. Um, it's someone that I have looked up to um you know for for many many years since i i stepped into um you know this industry and and there i say he is you know i consider him a friend um an inspiration um you know to me personally in my journey he he was one of the very very few platform ceo who gave me a time of day when i when I came on the scene um, a very uh, a, a few years ago, I'm talking about none other than the legendary David Ferguson. David, welcome <laughs> to Retirementals. <laughs> well, welcome. That's an extraordinarily kind introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see uh, if people feel about that later on in the last time. <laughs> no, I, I really mean that, David. You know, it must be sort of what. Um, probably about 10 years ago, um, you know, when I uh, sort of s- set up my, my firm for Finalytic at the time, yeah. and um, you were clearly one of the very, very few CEOs on, on, on Twitter, and you were, <laughs> you were probably the only one who listened to <laughs> what I had to say. But, you know, look, just for the purpose of you know, people who maybe have been living under the rock for the last 15 years or so. Give us a, a bit of a background to the journey that led to the creation and the rise of Nopins. Uh, sure, okay. Um, so my, I guess the, the roots of the company probably lie somewhat in my personal background and also in the background of Philip who started the business with me. Yeah. Um, we were both, uh, failed actuaries, I guess, is the truth of the matter. <clears throat> and we worked for a couple of um, life companies and asset managers early in our career. And, and I was also a bit of a technology geek. And um, it just struck me really early on, actually, when we were in our mid-20s, that the industry was set up really badly against the customer and, and also quite badly, actually, against advisors as well. And it's obviously long before the RDR and like that. And, um, and we thought it'd be so much better if instead of getting paid commission by uh, providers to sell their stuff, um, if advisors were paid by the clients to put them, put them, put advisors on the same side of the table as clients, basically. And if we could create this kind of technology and operational infrastructure to encourage that and catalyze that, that would be a really good thing to do. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and we started thinking about that back in, um, 
the late 90s, <clears throat> in about 1998, I think. And uh, a long story short, we ended up, it took us eight years, I guess, to get started. But um, but we got started in 2006 and, you know, kind of here we are, 15 years, almost 15 years, a couple of months time, maybe 15 years later. Yeah. So uh, that's, and it really what it was about was saying the ad advisor is the most trusted and important relationship with the client in this whole chain. You know, it wasn't, nobody really cared that much about the products. Um, it was much more about the, the, what, the, the kind of trust and reassurance and, and that sort of stuff that the advisor could provide the client with. <clears throat> and I think that's remained true really throughout, to be honest, Abraham. I'm really pleased that we've never really deviated from that principle. And, you know, things have come and gone and trends have come and gone somewhat in that time. But ultimately, is that how, how can we make, you know, what can we do to make the advisor more effective for the customer? That, that was kind of what it, what it was all about, you know, and, 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 and remains very much true today. Incredible. I, I'm, I'm interested in, in some of the um, early stories, right? You know, so, so if, I, if I remember this correctly, I might be wrong on this. So, so you and Philip were running um, your consultancy, marketing consultancy called, called Abacus at the time. And you obviously were consulting for live provided live companies. Um, you know, maybe AXA, I, I remember around the time, again, correct me, because this might not be true. And then you decided that you're going to set up a platform. Uh, you know, A, I'm interested in the inspiration. B, I'm interested in how, how you got funding for this. Was it just a case yeah. of sort of knocking the door um, of, I don't, I don't believe that you had VC funding at the time, you know, so no. was it a case of knocking the door of, of IFAs to see who will give you money or, 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 or how, how did you go about raising, yeah. raising money for that? So, so the sequencing, that's broadly right, but the sequencing is slightly different in that we, we made a decision to try and start a platform business before the Abacus started. And um, the Abacus was actually essentially a lifestyle business that allowed us to kind of eat and stuff like that you know well while um while we were raising the money for new what, what ended up being nucleus now we didn't know at the time it was going to take quite so long so i think i, I can't remember actually but i suspect when philip and i went into the abacus we thought it was probably for a year or two or three years while we um yeah, got the funding together and as it turned out it was for seven seven or eight years but uh, but uh, and we had a lot of fun doing that actually and as you say, we, we did sort of strategy, product design and marketing consultancy for most of the insurance companies in the UK and, and many of the asset managers. And um, we actually did some of the work that kicked off the profit review for the FSA at the time, which was uh, which is great fun, actually. Um, but um, so, yeah, that, that was how the sequencing was, I suppose. On the um, how we raised the money, we were the first person, the only person we really knew who had any avenue toward funding or to introduce us to people was a guy called Peter Lebeau, who was the, um, I think he was the marketing director at Swiss Re. He's actually a lovely man who people listening to this might know. Uh, absolutely wonderful individual, a very well-connected individual. And he introduced us to a guy called Paul Bradshaw, who again, will be known to many people and sadly died a few years back now, but he was, he ended up becoming the founding chairman of Nucleus, but he was the guy who really opened the doors and helped us uh, guide us towards what ended up being the funding we ended up with. And, and we looked at lots of different business models, actually. There were lots of versions of it. I always loved this spell. There was, a, there was a wonderful time back in 2002, I think it was, 
uh, we used to, Paul was sort of hanging out in an office on, um, on Bishopsgate in London, which is the office of Hawk Point. You know, lots of people came and went actually, and lots of people who've done really interesting things in the industry hung about in there and in a slightly romantic take on it. I always thought it was a bit like the beat poets. <laughs> the, the, the financial services equivalent of that. Um, and, um, and a load of interesting folk came and went because Paul was an amazing um, connector and huge brain and you know, just knew how this was all going to play out. And a lot of people would have turned to Paul to be their guide or mentor or, or, or access to, you know, provide access or introductions to funding. And, and, and so, so it came and we worked on that for a number of years, um, never quite landing the right model. And then we almost got backed by um, AIG actually in 2004 or five. And, uh, and they walked away quite late in, in, in the deal. And, um, and Paul actually at that time was introduced he got the job, he got back to an executive job actually with um, Santander or Abbey as it was at the time, I think. Um, and I, I kind of took, stepped up into the sort of steel box, I suppose, at the time of this not yet started business. And um, he introduced me to a guy called Angus Samuels, who at the time was looking after Sandlam's UK interests. And, um, and actually he's now Nucleus Chairman. And he, um, he really liked the idea and yeah, and, and, and essentially we put together this that, that that version of the business plan, which was this, you know, essentially a, a business that gave advisors a probably unprecedented influence over a platform. Um, Sandler had a minority of the equity at that time, and and management were there to try and build the thing, you know. So and, and so we got started. I met Angus in April two thousand five, and we got started in June two thousand six. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Sorry again <laughs> for my intrusion. Do you remember what the Do you remember what the valuation was right out of the gate? And well, it was funny. It was essentially valued at nothing because 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 we were um, because we were going to set up a regulated business. We had to have regulatory capital and stuff from the yeah. beginning. Um, and so we raised about I think we raised about four and a half million. If I remember correctly, it was a million of equity and, and, and some preference shares. Um, but it was, about, it was about four and a half million. We had a subsequent round in 2010. Um, I think the thing that I'll probably remain proud of was that we, the, the total accumulated losses of Nucleus were 10.2 million. So we, we only ever burnt 10.2 million of capital. You know, that was all, I thought was, that was always quite a good thing. And... Um, and yeah, so that was the, that was the kind of whole. So and and most of that money was, you know, the, I, I suppose the deal kind of was that Sandland put up most of the money, the IFAs brought the clients and the assets. And I think it's really important to remember as well at that time we we kind of redefined the pricing in the sector somewhat. You know, we came in at a price point which was probably, I think we were, you know, forty percent cheaper than Transact at the time or something like that. Um, yeah, and all the fun supermarkets were getting paid kickbacks by everybody left, right, and centre. So you know we. We, we came in with something which was materially cheaper, if you like, than the rest of the market. And I remember listening to lots of people, you know, complaining about IFAs having shares and, and all that. You still see it to this day sometimes, incredibly. But, um, you know, there's this whole thing about conflict of interest. And nobody ever argued whether there was a conflict of interest or not. It was whether it could be managed or not. Right. And, uh, and we were very relaxed about that. And even when you talk about vertically integrated businesses today, which I, I guess we may come on to in this discussion, 
um, you know, Newcastle was vertically integrated because the IFA owned more than half of it. And, um, you know, the, the fact that it had been done for the customer's good uh, seemed to be escaped. Most of the people who were arguing about it um, and, uh, you know, we thought it was a kind of interesting at the time, a sort of crowdfunding thing, I suppose, almost, um, although that language possibly wasn't used in those days. So, yeah, that was um, that's how we got started, I think, yeah, as I recall. So, so you, you, you pioneered, um, essentially, uh, yeah, th this idea of sort of IFA ownership of, of the platform. Um, well, I think, I think, I think um, if I remember correctly, there were some IFAs who had shares in Transact from the, from the beginning or near the beginning. Uh, and I think that was also replicated in Eccentric. But I think we were the first one that sort of gave them a seat, a proper seat at the table, you know, yeah. and had it as a part of our governance structure rather than just, you know, and most other people that did it had sort of free shares they gave away. And, and what's often overlooked actually in Nucleus is the IFAs didn't buy the shares at a discount to the price anyone else bought them for. Right, they you paid know, full it, price. It real money, it was proper cash. And they, they didn't get any preferential terms at all. And that was, that's often been lost to the, the mists of time. Okay, cool stuff. So no, no, no. It's, I just, I, I just think that it's it's easy to look at Nucleus today. You know, a very successful company, and to forget what those heyday days was like. So I wanted to to go back into it. But let, uh, let's. It's worth. It's worth. It's just. It's worth really quickly saying, and I always say this because quite a number of the people that were the first twenty people into Nucleus or whatever are still with us, and um, it's also fair to say that. It was obviously utterly hellish at times as well. <laughs> we shouldn't. We we all got sort of fond memories of some of it, but it was also um, yeah some pretty shocking times in there as well. But there you go. It's uh, it's natural to start up. I think. Incredible, incredible stuff. So so now let let's move on. Um, you know, to to the elephant in the room, so to speak. So you you which is the the sale of nucleus to to James A. You you were in the room where this all happened. And I'm fascinated about how the story went down. So was it just a case of Richard Rowley, who, who runs, um, you know, J James A, called you up and said, David, I'm going to buy you. And then you say, go flip yourself. <laughs> and then oh, he no, goes, no. no, seriously, I want to buy you. And then you said, you know, back and forth, right? And then you said, well, if you're really serious about it, I've got to put it to my shareholders. How did this how did it go? How did this happen? Tell yeah, me. Yeah, so uh, it was nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, um, I guess what happened is we—I mentioned Sandlam earlier, actually, as the founding shareholder of Nucleus, and um, yeah, and a really great shareholder for the business as well. Actually, the the company simply wouldn't exist if it wasn't for them. And we went through a spell in, particularly in late two thousand eight. I always remember where the world had kind of gone bust. And, um, and and Salam invested another two or three million pounds in us at that time to to allow us to continue. So, um, in in essence, what happened? You know, Nucleus has, has been a listed company for the last um, uh, three years almost. Um, it has a majority shareholder, despite being a listed company, if you like, which was Salam, who have had fifty two percent roughly of the business since then. Uh, they made the decision to exit that at a point, I, I don't know when that was, well, that was that's their decision and I, I'd imagine in the last 12 months or, or something like that. And um, and in, in disposing of 52%, they, they decided to, to sell it to a single party rather than sell it into the market, which was their right. right. And um, 
that led them to, I guess, you know, trigger a process to seek a buyer for that stake. And then, um, as was reported in the media late part of last year, there were two two bidders came forward initially, and then others entered the process for a little while. And um, and so I I I you know I only met Richard you know in the due diligence phase in December or something like that. So the, the process was initiated by um, Sanlam, and then essentially came to our board. And the way it works is. Um, as a public company, certainly you become basically bound by the takeover panel at that point. And uh, the, the process goes from being something initiated by a shareholder to something which is then, if you're owned by the board, if you like, you know. <clears throat> and um, yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole long story about the complexities of that, which is, I would imagine, not terribly interesting for anyone on this, <laughs> uh, on this call, um, on this podcast rather. But um yeah, ultimately we got to a point where in January, um, uh, Epirus struck James Hay with a um, with a remaining bidder, and and obviously we've now been working with them for the last uh, three and a half months, so, uh, yeah, three and a half, uh, three months something like that, to um, to to work through uh, the next steps. But it's also very interesting and, and worth saying that as a as a process, which is a private takeover of a publicly traded firm there's actually quite a lot of um well very strict rules governing what can and can't be uh, discussed between the parties at this stage until the deal completes so um the the expression we started using back in probably in december actually i think it was when this was all kicking off was was to get comfortable being uncomfortable because it just is a lot of uncertainty around the place and whether that's for our staff and uh, people that work at Nucleus, whether it's for advisors use Nucleus, whether it's for our suppliers, whether it's for myself, whether, you know, it's just the way it is. And, um, and, and that's, and we're still in that, that period right now. So it makes it, um, you know, for some people I found that really difficult because some people like to have more definition in their lives, if you like, and I can yeah. completely understand that. And equally, some people are happy to sort of, you know, roll the dice every day in the way they live their life and, and, and take each day as it comes. So we are in this kind of um, uh, in, interesting but uncertain time just now, which is, I think everybody, frankly, all parties would, would rather that wasn't the case, but it, it's that, that thing, you know, when you have to live by the law, <laughs> it tends to matter to people, which is, um, uh, which is the way it should be, you know, so, uh, so that's where we are, yeah. No, it's incredible. It's, you know, suddenly, you know, an emotionally challenging time or challenging more than emotionally for, for, for many people. And, and it's a sensitive conversation, right? So the, the thing I'm trying to get my tiny little head around is the, the public valuation of Nucleus, right? You know, and why there is this perception um, you know, that, that why, why Nucleus, for instance, is what, um, you know, less than, um, you know, maybe about around a tenth of what the likes of A.J. Bell or, or James, sorry, uh, A.J. Bell or, or Transact might have, you know, they might have three times your asset, but in terms of the, the actual valuation, um, you know, it, it's 10 times that. And I'm thinking, A, from your point of view, What's the driver behind this? 
Yeah. And my, uh, I guess, my worry or question, lines of question is actually if you, you know, uh, you know, when I think about what you've accomplished with Nucleus, essentially, uh, let's just say, I know that's not how it happened, you know, but you, you bond, um, you know, for, uh, 10 million cash bond, the company listed publicly, you know, now trade or the offers are around 145 million. So that's like 14 times the investment. Sanlam would have invested, let's say, I don't know, but let's say 5 million of the half of that amount. And now they're getting 14 times the va value of their investment, something like that. And yet there is this kind of perception that, you know, maybe um, Nucleus hasn't lived to his valuation from a value investor's point of view expectation. And I'm thinking, wh where is this coming from? Is it, is it just that the likes of AJ Bell and Transact, and indeed Hagrid's lands down, right? All of them worth over a billion um, in valuation. They've just set this outlying or outlier expectation for, for the market around, around platform. No, I think, um, I think there's a few things people look at. I mean, um, in, in the end, the valuation is driven by it's obviously multiple multiple profit in the end, right? That's the that's the key thing, right? And um, and that not, those numbers themselves, uh, the profit will tend to be a function of scale, uh, mm. because the way these businesses work is that there's substantial operating leverage emerges in them, operating margin emerges quite quickly once you get past a certain point of scale, and nucleus is probably um, you know at that point or near to that point now where we felt the the outlook and particularly when we bought the Genpack business in um in december uh you know we were very happy that that was set to improve the financial scalability of the business if you like um th then when you come to the scale piece it's really you know obviously that's a that's a function of of flows effectively and we definitely went through a spell where our flows were not uh, keeping up with the market in terms of what we're being achieved by the, the, the businesses you mentioned. And I think, I think we got, you know, the market, you know, chose to penalize us for that in, in the way they looked at the stock. And, um, and I guess that in, in some respects led us to the situation, today's situation. So I think, um, you know, if, uh, if you look at the multiple that transact is on, say, Integrafin's on versus the multiple nucleus is on, I think it's maybe only twice as much or something like that. Right. But in terms uh, of ma margin, sorry. Oh, no, no. Right. So it's like if we're if we're valued now on um, God, I, don't know if I should know the numbers off the top of my head, but if we're valued on you know twenty times earnings or something like that, they're valued yeah. forty times or whatever. Right. Yeah, they've also got their earnings are much greater because they're further down the road. And what's quite interesting is that Nucleus is actually bigger in terms of assets at the same duration since inception than Integrafin was, you know, so <clears throat> this is it's a seven year older business than we are, obviously, uh, and AJ Bell is many, many years older than us. And, uh, but, you know, for whatever reason, yeah, I think if you went back to, oh. if you go back to seven years ago, I suspect Integrafin was probably worth 150 million or something, I don't know, mm. but it was obviously privately owned, but um, I, I'd be surprised if it wasn't priced similar. I think, I think, I think where Integrafin and, um, and uh, AJ Bell are, is they've got past the proof point of, yeah, we can deliver scale and, and actually we can deliver scale without doing what life companies do and, and incur another hundred million pound of cost. You right. know, so, so it's, whereas Nucleus has got that promise, 
but hasn't been able to demonstrate that that yet. And um, and, and I think that's probably the main reason why there's that differential, you know. Um, and 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 I think that's. Yeah, I suspect if you look to, um, you know, the asset management industry, other other comparable sectors, you see the same sort of dynamics, you know. So so it's interesting. It leads me to the next question, which is: Did you do you think that you went public too early? You know. Um, um, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, um, we had an obligation to to consider that exit as part of our shareholder agreement. So we didn't actually have a huge amount of choice. We actually went at the later end, if I remember correctly, of the of the date range that was in our shareholder agreement. And we had an obligation to explore an exit at that point because people had a lot of people had backed us for um 12 years at that point, you know, capital tied up in the business and all that sort of thing. So <clears throat> I think we um if I live back 2018 and 19, we got a bit lucky. We listed right at the top of the market. Um, I, I can't remember, I think it was the Brexit concerns or something bit in the midpoint of 2018. <clears throat> and that led to flows slipping back. And everyone says when you list a business, you know, the only thing to really make sure you do is hit your numbers. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, bluntly we didn't. Uh, and you get penalized for that. And it takes it takes you a good year or two, I think, to rebuild that um, confidence it, it, from, from investors. And, you know, as it's turned out, we didn't have the, the, the luxury of time on that. I think it's as simple as that. And um, as you know, from the public data we released recently, we just had our best of our quarter. But, um, you know, and obviously we're in a bid situation now, so that's, that you, don't, you, don't necessarily, you don't know how that's going to be reflected in the price. But um, I suspect if we'd had six quarters like that or four quarters like that, then maybe maybe the world would have been different. But but equally, we now get the opportunity to try and um, uh, you know achieve that scale and that operating leverage and that valuation in a different structure um, with the James Hay uh, Group or James Hay Holdings, sorry, um, and uh, and hopefully. You know, see through the journey um, in, in a in a non-organic way that we that we set out to try and do, you know, three years ago or or fifteen years ago, depending on where you where you date it from. Now, a word from our sponsor, Nikki Heaton Jones, is the managing director and the chief investment officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Nikki, there, there are there, there are many flat fee retainer based uh, model portfolio services out there. Um, w- w- why is Betafolio pioneering this approach? I think we're more than a flat fee model portfolio service. We're a true investment partner. We're offering a full investment service to advisors and, and taking it to a, a deeper level. We don't just want to push a button and send an investment template. We're we're building technology and processes so that we can support advisors at the individual client level with client portfolios on real practical issues like cash management and decumulation and, and, you know, lots of other areas that are associated with actually implementing a financial plan rather than just providing a a model portfolio. So that's where I see us as, as being pioneering and perhaps taking the MPS products to a, to a new new level. 
Thank you very much, Nikki. I, I just like your honesty and candor about this, David. You know, obviously, um, you know, there it's it's a challenging time for 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 many members of your team, and there is you know not an insignificant voice within Nucleus who maybe aren't comfortable with the deal and they've said publicly, but um, the deal has now been turned into, you know, effectively a, a takeover bid. What does that mean? Does that mean, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, it's just a different mechanism. So the original um, method, um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm not an expert in this at all, but there, I think there are two ways you can basically affect a takeover uh, in this type of um, business. One is what's called a scheme of arrangement. And uh, that was the method that was being pursued until a few weeks ago. And then um, James Hayes switched to a try, um, takeover offer. And um, <clears throat> I think uh, ostensibly, they're just different mechanisms to achieve the same thing. Uh, ultimately, they would slide different thresholds for success, if you like, and, and, and the way the process runs. But ultimately, they, uh, they, they both have the same end goal, if you like. And, um, and we're now in an offer period, or still the whole thing is called an offer period, so the language is very complex. And, um, and we're now in a process where the takeover offer was launched, um, I think, was it last Tuesday or uh, something like that? Um, <clears throat> and there's a whole bunch of dates that, that are relevant in that whole process, which um, uh, shareholders have uh, been invited to, to, um, to take up that offer. And, that, and that's where we are. And um, yeah, I would expect that to proceed as, as, um, as frankly, the scheme of arrangement might have proceeded, you know. And I, you made a point about some people in Nucleus <clears throat> being in opposition to this. Yeah, I, th I think that's uh, evidentially true. Um, and I don't think, yeah, I think in probably any m &A situation, there's people who <clears throat> um, have concerns or, or I mean, the, the very structure that exists, frankly, of, um, that sort of representative body is a is in the takeover panel rules, you know. So it's, it's there as a sort of statutory instrument, if you like, to to allow people to have their say. And um, you know, that's I think it's right that people do have their say. I mean, you know, why why wouldn't you have that? You you, you want that. And nucleus has had a a way of being for fifteen years, where people are encouraged to speak up and join in and have you know try and make things. Uh, in the business improve or whatever so you know that's uh, 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 frankly if people really care about the business I think that's um, you know ultimately a positive thing. So so you've had your your best quarter yet uh, you, so you've had your best quarter so far um, in in Q1 of 2001 um, I'm, I'm keen on your thoughts on what, what you know A what, what do you think is driving this and B are you kind of seeing this as some sort of endorsement of the new direction from from IFAs? Hey, I, 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 possibly. I, I think we, we'd we begun to build really nice momentum back end of 2019 into 2020, right? So Q1 was going very well for us last year before the pandemic uh, a bit, obviously, and everything kind of slowed down. Uh, we then had, a, you know, like everybody, a pretty rough uh, say six months probably through the spring and summer last year and then things picked up really strongly from 
really September, October, November, December, right through right through Q1. So I think what we've seen is a continuation of a positive trend that started for us in Q4 2019. Um, I'd say that was probably something that reversed the negative period of flows we had uh, just post-listing, you know, where we, we probably had, I don't know, three or four quarters where we, we kind of disappointed a bit. Um, and uh, that meant that, you know, had it not been for the pandemic, um, I suspect that momentum that was building in Q1 last year would have continued through last year. Uh, so I think it's more we've been getting things right on the product, on service and on pricing rather than um, uh, anything else. I think everyone's had a pretty good Q1 because there's been quite a lot of capital accumulating in people's bank accounts, to be honest, which is money that some people haven't been spending through the last 12 months. Um, but yeah, certainly it was nice to get a, a really a really strong quarter in Q1. And, you know, like all things in life, it's nice to it's nice to have your best ever anything, really, isn't it? You know, so, <laughs> um, whenever, whenever and however it occurs. So um, that was really cool, actually. Yeah. So, so let, let's move on to sort of a, a more wider industry trend. You know, clearly we've seen sort of, let, let's call it a flood of private equity money into the platform space. There's the um, EPRIS. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce them. Is it EPRIS? <laughs> uh, I think it's Epirus. Epirus. All right, Epirus. And um, an Anacap, you know, and a few others in, in the sector. I wonder what your thoughts on this are. Uh, is, is this good or bad? You know, and more importantly, from an IFA's point of view, is, is this a more reliable sort of long-term ownership compared to, say, the traditional, um, uh, you know, live call or, or even um, public market? I think it remains, I think it sort of remains to be seen. I I don't think it's as easy as saying one model is right or wrong or better or worse. You know, I mean, I, I think I think what's really good is that certainly in this space, and certainly in beginning to get to know the Paris people and the James Hay people, there's a really clear understanding, and it's, this is kind of what you see with Integrafin as well and AJ Bell. You know, nobody is likely to be very successful in this space if they run. A low quality product or low quality service, right? Um, I don't think there's an opportunity to make a lot of money doing a bad thing. You know, I don't, I don't think that exists, right? We, you've seen people. There's been lots of money plowed into the platform sector over the last 10 or 15 years. That's done really crap work and delivered really poor products, and shareholders have lost out. You know, so mm. I think if um, whether it's private equity or public markets, whatever. If, if it's well understood that to be successful in the space, you've got to be pretty good at what you do and a good service and all that. I think that's a great thing and, 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 and is a really positive change from maybe some of the lazier capital that's been in the sector in, the, in previous years, which you know, may have come from product providers or whatever, where they, you know, they didn't really know what they were into. They didn't understand the technology, all that sort of stuff. So if, if private equity helps sharpen up the sort of quality of management, the quality of products we see in the market, the quality technology implementations, all that sort of stuff, then, you know, frankly, I think that's a really, really positive thing. I think it's more, you know, I think 
and again, similarly, similarly, frankly, on in public markets, you've got business like Integra and Radio Bell, which are, you know, great businesses um, in their own way, being successful in the public market. So I don't think you can draw an obvious conclusion about what's the best capitals or best type of capital to to run a platform business. Um, but I think you can probably say the worst capital is probably soft capital. It doesn't really know what it's doing. And, uh, and and we've seen quite a lot of that in in the previous decade or so. And I, 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 I so rather than be a cheerleader for public markets or for private equity, I probably look at the other way and say that the more dangerous road is is where the capital doesn't really know what it's doing and it doesn't have anyone to hold to account effectively on it. And I think that's where we've been, to be honest. Um, and I don't think we're in that space now. There's that there seems to be, there's maybe some but still around, but mo most people now, I think, would accept that you've got to be delivering something pretty good to, 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 to be successful here. And, and, that, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, you know, a lot of financial services companies and some still today get away with making a lot of money not being very good. You know, we'll, we'll maybe go into asset, regional asset management later, but, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, you know, in most industries, successful companies do something good for some customers, right? You know, yeah. that, that's pretty well trailed path in most in most industries, and unfortunately, it hasn't always been true here. So, yeah, I'm I'm sort of rambling now, sorry, but um, I, I don't think that the the type of capital is the single most important um, driver of success. So, I like what you say about the way I'm interpreting it. It's about this intentional capital versus kind of uh, <laughs> did you call it lazy capital? I forgot the time yeah, that you yeah, yeah. right. So so we're we're seeing this trend towards um, you know sort of vertical integrated model, but coming from the asset manager side of things. So you see the likes of Schroders, M and G, and indeed you know um, you know Vanguard wanting to own more and more of the value chain so they you know all of those in these examples are asset managers that have created a platform or bought a platform and then um you know bought or building they're now buying or building out the advice channel what's your what's your thoughts on, on this um yeah but i think um I think the theory is entirely sound, right? You know, it, it should be possible to use the economies of scale and the integration of those business units to deliver something better. You know, I mentioned earlier, I think that Nucleus was effectively a partially vertical integrated model right from the very beginning. That we managed to cut the cost to customers by having advisors and shareholders. And, um, you know, what we've just done with our model portfolio service again using the insights we've got, we've been able, able to launch something which is lower cost than, not than every model portfolio service in the market, I appreciate that, but, 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 but more than many. And um, I, I think what I find really distasteful is, is these models where we integrate the whole thing solely to keep selling junk to people that nobody else wants to buy, you know, and that, that's what I get really uncomfortable with. And, you know, it feels to me that the overall price, the, the chain. I always think if you look at the if you look at the presentations that some of these firms give to analysts, and then look at the brochure they put in front of their customers, mm. they're entirely different things, right? And I have a real problem with that. I think if you believe in what you're doing, tell the truth, yeah. You know, but if you've got a total cost in the whole chain of 
200, 250, 300 basis points, my sense is there are very, very few retail customers that need to be paying that much money, right, for, for this stuff. And I, and, and I think for as long as people are paying that, there should be question marks over those business models. And I, and I, find, them, I find them distasteful because I don't think... Um, I, I don't think it can possibly be consistent with good value for money. It's interesting. One of the sort of blessings I say of my career is that whilst other people were reading brochures, you know, the consumer brochures of, of uh, platforms and providers, I was reading their financial statement and, and, yeah. and you always find it incredible sort of, um, I don't, you know, I'll go as far as saying conflict, you know, maybe coherence in some cases between what they're telling consumers and, and indeed what, what they're, they're, they're saying to, to shareholders and investors. And, and I've always found that, um, you know, fascinating. Another trend that we're seeing in the platform sector, perhaps, you know, at a much earlier stage of, you know, this idea that, mid-sized mid firms can run their own platform in some shape or form. So they can buy the technology, you know, maybe get the regulatory permission or some regulatory permission and have control over, um, you know, a degree of control over the cost and the level of service to, 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 to consumers or to their clients. Um, d d what's your take on this? Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's very interesting. It's actually kind of where Nucleus started. You know, seven firms. I should I should mention at the top of this. I mean, we got approached by firms. You know, the first some of the first firms that joined Nucleus, and people approached us to build a platform for them. You know, it wasn't it wasn't uh, like we went out and found them all. And um, I think it's a very interesting development. I think the the the, the only challenge I've got is I think if you're if you're kind of clipping the ticket, as it were. I think you've got to be doing something for that. You know, I, I don't think it works if you're just passing something through and taking 10 basis points out of it. I find that that, that pretty tricky. Uh, but I think if, if you've got an advice firm and then whether, whether people are using, you know, Pershing or, or Seckle or um, uh, Hubwise or whatever, you know, all these models can work. I'm not sure that every advisor firm that is doing it fully understands uh, what the consequences might be for their regulatory capital, for the regulatory responsibilities, you know what happens. How how seriously are they dealing with their requirements around material outsourcers, all that sort of stuff? You know what are they going to do if um, one of these businesses uh, withdraws from the market or goes bust or or whatever? You know, have they really got the oversight um, of what's going on every day on client money and all that sort of stuff? So I think it's um, you know if, if um, I don't know, pick a random name. If, if, if Brew and Dolphin can run their own platform, I don't see why a, a much smaller financial planning business can't do it. And if like, uh, in terms of from the legitimacy point of view. Mm. Um, but I think just as I'm sure Brew and Dolphin take it very seriously from a regulatory and oversight and whoever they use for their tech and everything, I'd expect the, an advisor firm to do likewise. And, and I think that's where there's no, I don't think there's a huge body of evidence yet to demonstrate that's, that's being done or, and it may well be being done, but I don't think it's, it's not obvious yet that this has been a success because there's a reasonably new approach for most people. And we probably won't know for another few years, perhaps, whether this is going to work. Because, you know, if you get a scenario where 
this works just now because you think you can charge, you know, whatever, 35 basis points for a platform. And let's say the platform market prices at 20 basis points. Well, is it okay if you decide to take 15 basis points out of this still, or, 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 or do you have to now make it 20 bips and then you can't afford to do it anymore? And there's a whole, mm. you know, how, how does that, how, how durable is it remains to be seen, I think. And um, there, there's a long history of um, IFA firms you know, developing software, tools, stuff like that. And in, in most instances, they've kind of hit a point where it doesn't scale or they can't, um, they can't maintain it or the cost of maintenance goes through the roof and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and equally, you know, I think if you're a financial planner and, and a successful financial planner, you know, that's, that's kind of what you are, right? You know, if you want to be a platform as well, that's, that's legitimate, but you've got to have the expertise to be a platform as well. Cause it's, you know, it just isn't, I mean, people, uh, you know, you people say platforms, just technology and you know, one level that's true, right? At another level, it's just not because there's thousands of operational processes going on that you've got to understand underneath the, underneath the bonnet. And similarly, um, I remember speaking with John Baxter years and years ago. Yeah. Um, when he, I think he built some great stuff with, uh, I think Giles Pitcock, I think back in the day, um, to do sort of cash flow modeling basically on spreadsheets, uh, which was really at the time was amazing, you know. Um, but ultimately, I guess well, m- maybe they still do it that way. I don't know. But it's these things have tended to become productized, you know, proper software teams working on them now. And, and I just, I'm always just slightly wary of what people's motivations are to get into this stuff. And if it's to deliver something much better and more efficient, then great. Um, I think in instances there are, it's, it's just to make a bit more money without taking any more responsibility. And that's a bit less comfortable for me. And I think this is fascinating because, I, and I, I almost feel conflicted about this, mm-hmm. right? You know, on the one hand, I understand um, you know, the dissatisfaction that advisors might, you know, find with, with platforms, right? With the sort of mainstream platforms that they use, um, you know, um, and I understand um, as, as, as once a, a small business owner that, you know, that kind of um, natural tendency to want to just, you know, break down the door and do it yourself, right? On the other, I think we have to face the reality that advisors are not tech companies and, you know, added to that, all the regulatory sort of, um, you know, things that you just had added to this. And I, I don't know is, 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 is the honest answer where, where this is all going to lead. I mean, and then you look at, um, you know, some of the platforms that have been trying to do this for years um, haven't um, sort of scaled in a meaningful way, Um, you know. So, no, I think it'd be interesting to see, um, you know, to see. I I think that's right. It's a really interesting thing because it's, you know, you get this thing where it's quite appealing to want to have more control. I, I totally get that, right? Yes. Um, but, you know, like I know in our, our own business, you know, if, if we add a new transaction type onto Nucleus, right, for some tax wrapper or some, you know, the, the, the consequences of that are can be quite profound, right? Because it runs right through the client reporting and right through the entire registry. It runs to our CAS resolution pack. It runs right through 
you know, everything we do, you know, and, and the idea that you can just sort of just do that in an afternoon is just right. nuts, to be honest. It's, it's just nuts. And it's irresponsible. And, and anyone that says that doing that is easy is bluntly full of shit. You know, it's not true. You know? <laughs> and um, I don't buy it. And, and there's a, there's a tendency to think, Oh, it's just that, or it's just that these things are operationally very complex businesses, whether people like to believe that or not. And, um, you know, there's a guy that runs uh, our client money stuff, for example, at Nucleus, uh, Scott McDonald. And you, if you want to come and spend a day in his life, <laughs> and, uh, no, he's a great guy. He's a very smart guy and he's, he's top quality individual. But if you want to know, you know, he, he sits in him or someone in his team sits in all our change programs and, and roadmap stuff because it might be a kind of cast consequence. And you have the same issue on cybersecurity or on, you know, any other uh, lens you want to put on it. Um, but some some notion that five people can get together and do this at scale is just, I think it's crazy and dangerous actually. Because I remember uh, listening to Angus McDonald, I think is the Hubwise guy, isn't he? And he said at one point, they'll never employ more than 10 people or something. Yeah. I say, well, a, I think that's, I think it's already untrue, but you know, it it just doesn't work like that, you know. And I, you you know yourself building your own business that the I've always believed there's a substantial substantially different challenge in building a product than there is to building a business. Yes, and yes, substantially yeah. different, right? And so it might work when the first ten of you get together and build it. And what happens if three of them leave, right? What happens then? And and what and then the other guy, and then you you have you know, people's lives change and they want to change their pattern, working patterns or, or whatever it is, you know, and to, to create something that actually works every day and doesn't fall over when the first guy, you know, decides for a change of career or whatever is, is, is not the same <laughs> as knocking something together in a, you know, in, a, in, in, in three months or whatever. So I, 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 I sort of, I'm a great enthusiast actually for that advisor influence and control over how these things should be and we built Nucleus entirely like that. And all the roadmap stuff gets massively informed and influenced by that. But equally, sometimes we have to say, like, some of our budget is going on this now because because we need to invest in the, you know, the scalability of this bit or the mm. you know, whatever, security, whatever it is. Look, this is, a, this is a podcast about retirement, right? So I think, uh, you know, tell us, you know, what does David Ferguson retirement plan and portfolio look like? Uh, give us an insight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, so as it happens, uh, this, will, this will date this, but this is uh, this is our son's yeah. sixth birthday today. As it happens. Congrats! to him. So, so my personal uh, plan is to be doing something meaningful and full time until he leaves uh, school, which is, I guess, 12, 12 and a half years away or something. By which time, um, should I be spared, I will be 63 years old. And um, I'm not sure I really believe in the concept of retirement entirely, to be honest. I appreciate it's the name of your podcast, but, <laughs> but um, I don't think, uh, I don't like the idea of um, stopping doing this stuff entirely. I don't, I don't think that's my thing. I don't have any particularly major hobbies or things I want to do outside of this. So I would think... Um, if I if I get past the next twelve years doing this sort of thing, and uh, maybe I'll spend the however many years I have after that doing other interesting stuff with interesting people. 
No doubt, no doubt. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, you obviously have uh, a very large seaport. <laughs> Tell Almost me what, a very large pension port, I'm saying. <laughs> but tell me what's in it, uh, sort of, uh, sort of funds, asset, asset class-wise, what do you invest in? So our, um, I'm not terribly active in this stuff at all, actually. So our uh, assets tend to be sitting in index funds, nuclear shares, or defined benefit pension schemes from my earlier days. That's probably right. it. It's not, it's not very complicated or exciting, I'm afraid. And, uh, yeah, I find it fascinating, right? You know, uh, I mean, you, you, you know, people in asset management or investment industry generally tend to have incredibly, maybe the ones I meet, tend to have incredibly simple um, sort of, you know, portfolio, which, which, is, which is interesting. I think you know yourself in, um, in your own business, you end up being overexposed to your own single stock, right? Um, and I think that makes quite a strong argument to do something pretty vanilla with the rest of it. That's how I look at it anyway, in a simplistic way, you know? Yeah. And obviously if I had lots of money kicking about, I'd obviously invest it in Nucleus IMX as a, as a <laughs> which is a very wise solution for anyone looking for something that's better value and a bit more personal. <laughs> yeah, no, it's incredible. I really want to talk about IMX and, and how you are, um, you know, sort of changing the la landscape on that. So, you have one minute, go on. <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, yeah, we took all the lessons in that from the institutional market. And, you know, we've always thought retail asset management's kind of oversupplied, overpriced and under delivers. And you know, why, why, don't we, why don't we bring the lessons from the institutional market into retail where, where basically you've got more informed buyers is the biggest single difference in the market, right? So we, we figured we could take a load of cost out and deliver something more personal by, by focusing on the outcomes people are trying to generate rather than on just trying to, you know, match a volatility band or something. Yeah. So we've been working on it for two or three years, maybe a little bit longer. It went live um, properly in first of January. Um, we're getting some nice traction now. Yeah. So I think it's a, I think it's a really valid addition to the market. Actually, I think it's sufficiently different to a whole bunch of me too solutions. Um, and I think it's got, I think it's got a really good, good place in the market. Actually, I'm excited about it. I think, I think that whole joining up of technology, you know, outcomes portfolios, monitoring, how the tech, you know, keeps you on the, uh, with the right probability of success, I think is, 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 is a pretty big part of financial planning going forward. So if IMX is a stepping stone towards that, then we'd be pretty proud of that. Yeah. Good stuff. Incredible stuff. Final, final question, a little bit unfair, right? You know, but, um, you know, what, what's next, you know, for you? you? You've been a pioneer and inspiration in the sector. What, what, what's next for, for, for David Ferguson? What is next for me, right? So next is I'm going to go and uh, make a burger and chips. <laughs> son's uh, son's uh, birthday. And I'm going to pick up my mum. He's going to come in and uh, give him a birthday present. And then um, I'm going to get back to as best we can within the confines of our current construct. Uh, working with uh, Richard and the guys at James here on how we're going to make this uh, thing into the best platform in the UK. So that's kind of that's, that's on my agenda. Not all this afternoon. I'm happy to say <laughs> we'll probably run out of time, but uh, that's what that's what we're trying to do. You know? Incredible stuff, David Ferguson. You know, thank you for the your time today. Thank you for the incredible work that you've done in the industry and that you continue to do. 
I am personally, personally grateful to you. Um, as I said, you've been an inspiration and, um, you know, I, I look forward um, to, to what's to come. So David Ferguson, thank you very much. Thank you. you very much. It's great to spend some time with you, Abraham. Great stuff. Keep up the good work. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.